Welcome back to another edition of the Paracast. I'm your host, Michael Pagani, joined alongside Sportsnet Raptors courtside reporter, Eric Smith. Eric, how are you today? I'm great. How you doing, Michael? I'm doing great during these uh, unfortunate times. Hopefully everything can get back to normal soon. Yeah, I think we're all kind of waiting for that, hoping for that, uh, you know, some sort of uh, return to normalcy. But, um, you know, and I'm sure I speak for you as well, just as long as it's safe, and healthy for everybody to do so. That's that's kind of uh, the paramount thing right now. I'm 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 prepared to stay bunkered in as long as it takes. Uh, uh, but at the same time, I think we're all getting a little bit stir crazy right now, and uh, keeping a keen eye on uh, the phase two opening. And and hopefully, even though we're we're opening ourselves up as a as a community again, hopefully people can still you know practice uh, social distancing and, and, and all the safety precautions, uh, when necessary, as we sort of try to ease back into that normalcy. Being hunkered in, uh, you know, a lot of people have turned to Netflix and among those Netflix shows have been a hit show like Tiger King, Ozark and Outer Banks or other big shows. What have you been doing during quarantine? Uh, most of what you just hit on there. I mean, certainly the last dance was, was probably at the top of my list for at least the, the, you know, the five weeks that it was out, I was watching, uh, the two episodes as soon as they came out, as soon as they were available. Uh, you mentioned Ozark. Uh, I just finished uh, season three last week, so I, I made my way through that. And very early on, uh, I did watch Tiger King. Um, I thought it was better in the initial few episodes and got a little more ridiculous as it went on. Um, you know, other than that, it, we've kind of uh, developed into a little, you know, family tradition within my household uh, with my, my wife and son where uh, family movie night has been kind of almost every night now and, and just on a rotation where I pick one, my wife pick one, picks one, my kid picks one, and then we circle back. And, and you know, it was uh, a stretch where it was seven days a week. Maybe it might be three or four nights now because obviously with the better weather, we can be outside longer, even if it's just sitting in the backyard or uh, going for a walk or whatever else. But, uh, you know, just watching way more movies, whether it's Netflix or Crave or or Disney Plus or whatever it may be, just trying to occupy the time and fill that evening that would have ordinarily been filled or occupied by uh, professional sports. So um, that's just kind of, kind of, uh, it's, it's, and I'm sure you've probably said the same, but it's sort of Groundhog Day every day. It's, it's almost like it's the same routine on a daily basis, uh, which is in some senses fun, but it can be also frustrating other days as well. Well, with your movie watching, you've actually been doing a midweek on your Instagram account where you bring on uh, people within the sport industry. Uh, could you elaborate on how that idea came about? Yeah, it was just honestly something to try and keep myself a, a little occupied and busy and, and just kind of you know, keep my creative juices flowing a little bit as well. I've always enjoyed uh, you know, shows like this and interview format uh, shows. I, you know, I'm, I'm still uh, a big fan of, of talk radio, whether it's sports talk or news talk, or I, I mean, to this day, I'm a a big Howard Stern fan, uh, and and not necessarily for the uh, uh, for the humor. I know some people hear Howard Stern and they automatically, and rightfully so, he's earned a reputation for some of the offside jokes and off-color comments and, and commentary and whatnot. But to me, what makes him uh, an even better broadcaster is his interviewing skills and, and his ability to uh, get information and stories out of guests. And you know, I think of. Um, you know, so many greats. I, I used to think, and I know I'm older than you, but, you know, David Letterman as a late night talk show guy, I thought was a good interviewer. Uh, um, you know, Peter Mansbridge on the news side here in Canada, George Strombolopoulos. Uh, I, I, I've always just kind of been entertained and intrigued by the interview and, and talking to people. Um, and I've done radio shows many years in the past and, and 
uh, whether it be evening shows on the fan or a couple of years where I had an afternoon show as well. I've always just enjoyed that talking all sports and, and talking to people from across the sports world. So I felt that that was something that I could do. Uh, you know, my family goes to bed a heck of a lot earlier than me. I'm used to being awake till, you know, 12, one, two o'clock, you know, calling basketball games, hopping on an airplane, flying all over the place. So my internal body clock really hasn't changed during this pandemic. So I figured if the family is going to be going to bed anyways, and I'm going to be sitting up alone for two, three, four hours, uh, why not do some work? So I came up with the idea of doing the, the midweek show and, and talking to colleagues uh, from across the industry and some athletes and, and whatnot as well. Um, I've since scaled it back. It was Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I'm now only doing Wednesday nights because I've started back on the radio as of last week and, and now into my second week of doing uh, an afternoon show on the fan daily, Monday to Friday with my broadcast partner, Paul Jones. So we've got Smith and Jones on the fan from one to two. So I figured even though it's only an hour, if I'm doing five days a week uh, with a radio show, I didn't want to do another three days late at night. So I figured uh, scale it back a bit, but don't blow it up completely because I do enjoy doing it. So it'll be Wednesday nights only. Uh, and I'm enjoying it because it's, it's an opportunity to not just talk sports, to tell some stories and to dig into people's uh, careers and their starts and their views on the world and, and how they're dealing with the pandemic and kind of what you're doing with, with this show, just uh, talking big picture and not just always about the X's and O's from last game or or what needs to work next game and kind of previews and recaps and previews and recaps like we kind of fall into that rut sometimes when we actually have sports on. So it's, uh, it's, it's nice to be able to be a little bit more creative with the conversations. You mentioned names like uh, George Strombolopoulos and Howard Stern. Do you ever want to emulate what they have? Uh, how do you mean by what, I ha what they like, have? Like uh, you said that they have good interviewing skills. Did you ever want to replicate that? Um, I don't think so. I mean, listen, I think we all, you know, it's, it's cliche, but I think it's true that, that imitation is the, the, the best or the most sincere form of, of flattery. So I think we all take, I'm sure you as a, as a budding broadcaster as well, you take certain traits, characteristics, ideas from people that you respect or admire, and then you apply it to what you do. But I don't think, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I don't think I try to mimic what they do, uh, whether it's their voice, their style, their cadence, whatever. Um, but it's, it's taking some of those traits and applying it to how it fits your skills and, and your style and your personality. So, um, I, I, I think that's the best way for me to answer it. I mean, hey, I would love Howard Stern's paycheck, I, you know, I, but, but uh, other than that, I don't think that, 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 again, I try to change who I am as a broadcaster or what I am. But at, at the same time, my, my advice to myself, let alone to, to you being a little bit younger, would be it's good to listen to others and to take from others and to learn from others because you've got to constantly be learning and, and trying to um, you know, diversify yourself and, and show your versatility and, and learn and grow um, and not just think that you, you know it all, you have all the answers, there's only one way to do it. Um, you've got to be willing to kind of morph and, and, and sort of juke and jive as the industry changes uh, and as people's um, interests and, and tastes change as well. So it's, to me, it's, it's paramount. It's imperative that you continue to watch others and, and learn from others. Have you ever watched uh, NASCAR Bundesliga since it has returned? Uh, I haven't. And I will say that in the last few days, um, well, hold on, I'll go back for a second. I'm not, here to, I'm not here to knock or criticize or anything. I've never been a soccer fan. And I think a large reason for that, Michael, is because I didn't play it as a kid. And, and oh, I'm, okay. I'm of the belief. And, and, and I, don't know if, I don't know if this is true. This is just how I believe. I think that a lot of people get a passion for a sport because they played it. There yeah, are very yeah, few I people, I think, 
You know what I mean? I, th I think there are very few people that are passionate about a sport or love a sport if they didn't play, even I'm talking even just recreationally, forget about whether you played in Little League or in any kind of organized league at all. Did you play it even recreationally in your backyard with friends, whatnot? I, I mean, I grew up, I, I, was, I was playing road hockey nearly every damn day of the, the week, including in the middle of the summer. But I was also playing basketball almost every day of the week, including in the winter with the little gloves from the dollar store with the fingertips <laughs> cut off so I could still feel the ball and shoveling the driveway so I could shoot. Uh, I would play, I played baseball right through high school and played four years of high school ball. And, and that was probably the sport I was best at. I played a ton of tennis and played one year on the high school team as well, but I was always going to play tennis against a buddy. I played golf and I still play golf terribly. I'm no better than I was five years ago, let alone 20 years ago. I'm an awful golfer, but I enjoy doing it. So all of these things that I talk about, I've played. I never played soccer. I never cared to play it in the backyard. I never cared to play it in any sort of organized level. So I just never had an interest in it uh, at, at a young age, let alone then into my teens. So uh, I've only been to one MLS game in my life. And it's not to say that I don't respect the, the talent level and the skill level of soccer players across the world and certainly the passion for soccer fans uh, here locally, let alone across the world. It just isn't for me. Um, so taking all that that I said, applying that to the Bundesliga right now. No, uh, as much as it's nice to see some sort of sport back and something to watch, yeah, it's just not really for me. And everything I said about soccer kind of applies to auto racing as well, whether it be yeah. IndyCar, F1, uh, NASCAR, or otherwise. I just was never a huge auto racing fan. I think what has piqued my interest more in the last couple of days is certainly the horrific story involving Bubba Wallace and, yeah. and the noose being found um, you know, and, and I think because of that, I wanted to see how the NASCAR world, NASCAR itself, let alone the fellow drivers, then let alone the fans, I was watching more from a political and social uh, viewpoint. How are they going to react to this? What are they going to do to try to right this and to, to, do, to do right by Bubba Wallace and to stand by him and to have his back? And that's where in the last few days, I certainly have watched with more of a keen interest than I on NASCAR. And I did tune in uh, to the race at Talladega for a little bit just to watch because of that alone. Uh, but on a week-to-week -week basis, I'm not a huge auto racing guy. Uh, I have watched some of the uh, baseball that has returned from, from you know, overseas. I've watched a little bit of that. But uh, I guess I'm guilty of, of maybe um, being focused a lot on, on the big four and, the, and, and North American pro sports more than anything. Well, I find that NASCAR and soccer just, it, it takes forever for like the play to uh, continue, you know, like it, the pace of play is definitely uh, at the forefront. And, you know, not to say that uh, NASCAR and soccer fans aren't huge about it, because obviously they are. Uh, I just find it personally that it takes uh, a lot. Uh, it's a long way to the finish line. Well, I think that's probably the case for, for, you know, I'm a huge baseball fan, but there are a lot of people out there that don't like baseball because of that as well. They don't like that it takes three plus hours. They don't like the time that it takes in between pitches and, and how slow the pace is when compared to uh, how fast, obviously, basketball and hockey can be, per se. Same thing, you know, people that talk about they don't like the slow pace of golf or, or some that even don't like uh, the National Football League or the Canadian Football League. And obviously, the Canadian game seems to have a little bit more speed and pace to it than, than the NFL. And it's the age-old argument and question about, you know, attending a uh, football game in person versus on TV, at least on TV, you can you know, get the replays and have a second screen with you and change the channels and go to the fridge. But in a stadium, it's, it's kind of, it's, it, it can be a bit of a grind at times. So I think mm -hmm. that's maybe just a product of society right now that sort of, we want it fast, we want it quick. And, and 
at least for people in this country, if you've grown up a lot on hockey or you've grown up in the, the Raptor generation of basketball, uh, you know, two sports that are a little bit more upbeat and quick and, and have a better pace to them. Um, it can be tough to, 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 to really commit to some of the slower, more methodical sports that are out there. Now, I want to get into your story here. Uh, what influenced you to get into sports journalism? Um, you know, it's probably the same thing you've heard from a lot of people in the past. I think I accepted and, and, and understood at a fairly early age that I wasn't going to be uh, good enough uh, to play at any significant level. As I said, you know, baseball was my best sport as much as I loved basketball. I'm a weird Canadian. I told you I played road hockey, but I never played organized yeah. ice hockey at any level. Um, and that was partly probably skill, but even then I can't say it was skill because I never did it. It was probably more economic reasons as, you know, with just my family and, and not having the money necessarily to do so growing up. Uh, but baseball from a young age was, was, was ingrained into me and I played it year after year and played at high levels. And as I said, played through four years of high school and, uh, was lucky enough to play in front of a few scouts in my final year in high school. They weren't looking at me. Uh, they were looking at other guys on my team, but, but, you know, could there have been an opportunity to play at a very small division three school on a partial scholarship? Who knows? Maybe. Uh, but even then it was like, this is not taking me anywhere. And, 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 uh, again, I just knew that. I, I was decent enough to continue to play, but not good enough to play at any significant level. And I guess I just kind of decided at a fairly young age, it wasn't at the end of high school, it was mid high school. Uh, I was intrigued and, and interested uh, with the idea of getting into broadcasting and, and specifically into television. And that was my first, uh, you know, interest or, or passion. And I've said many times, Michael, for, for um, a lot of young folks, whether it's in high school or, or even into college university, um, I feel for, for people that I felt for my, my own friends and I feel for anybody that's come after me, it's very difficult, um, to know or to think, you know, at a young age, what you want to do. And then it's much different when you're 18, 19, 20, let alone 21, 22, 23 to look at yourself in the mirror or to look at everything you've done and all the studies you've done and say to yourself, this is not what I wanted to do, or hopefully fingers crossed this is what I wanted to do. And thank gosh, I stayed on this path to do it. And in a very long winded way, I think that's where I'm lucky that at probably 15 ish, 15, 16 years old, I knew what I wanted to do. And it turned out that I knew what I wanted to do. What I thought I wanted turned out to be, yes, this is what I wanted. So I stayed on that path. And in high school, I took a lot of uh, uh, English classes and, and took very few sciences and maths. Uh, focused a lot on on the language and writing, uh, creative writing and whatnot. Uh, and then as a result, was able to apply to a lot of different uh, universities and colleges that had good journalism programs and broadcasting programs, and ultimately made the decision to turn down university and go the college route, um, simply because I, I like the idea of learning from people with no disrespect to college or excuse me, to uh, university professors. I like the idea of learning from college teachers who many of whom were in the industry and working at the college as a part-time gig in addition to their full-time job, whether it be as producers, directors, reporters, hosts, engineers, whatever, just learning from those in the industry and also learning in a classroom of 25 or 30 people instead of a auditorium of 150 people. Right, so I yeah. opted, you know, I opted for the college route and I felt that was better for me and it turned out it was. Um, and then I kind of just, uh, you know, worked my way very hard through uh, college and, and I don't say this I'm, I'm saying this I promise you free of any kind of not bragging here I'm not trying to be arrogant or cocky about it 
I was an average high school student. I had the numbers, the marks to get into certain universities, but I, I believe my, my, my high school average was uh, like high seven, I wanna say 78, 79, I honestly don't even remember. I know it wasn't in the 80s. Um, but at college, in my three years at Humber, I was on the Dean's list all three years um, and graduated with honors and, and ultimately landed a, an internship at the fan and was hired through my internship as a part-timer and very quickly a full-timer as well. So, you know, I think that speaks to, again, being lucky enough to, at a young age, think I knew what I wanted to do and ultimately found out that, yes, this is what I want to do. And because I had a passion and an interest in it, that helped me focus on my studies and on my work that much more to the point where I went from being, as I said, an average high school student to somebody who was focused on a, on a, on a goal and, and focused on wanting to become the best I could be in college to the point where it, it, it translated out into the marks and the grades that I ultimately was able to get. What kind of reporting or, you know, I guess media did you do at Humber? Uh, I mean, it was, it was interesting the way the program was set up then, and I quite honestly don't know if it's the same way now, but uh, it was a three-year program. And the first uh, year, if not the first two years, I believe it might've been the first, uh, you're gonna make a liar out of me now. I, I'm honestly, I can't remember now, it was the first year or two years. I believe it was two years. First two years, you got a bit of everything. So you got newspaper writing, magazine writing, feature writing, editing, layout. So you were learning all the facets of the job, but then there was also, radio reporting, radio hosting, radio editing, television hosting, television reporting, television editing. So you were getting to learn in front of the camera, behind the camera, and on the mic, behind the mic, uh, as the writer, as the editor, etc. So all facets of the job. Um, there was an internal TV station, but it wasn't even broadcast out to the students at that time. Again, I don't know if that's changed. We're talking 20 plus years ago now for me. Um, 25, as terrible as it sounds, almost 25. Um, uh, it was just broadcast essentially to the broadcast students, but I did work for the school paper uh, for a couple of years and worked in the sports department and covered the men's basketball team and traveled with the team uh, to, to road games and to, to a provincial and national championships and, um, you know, kind of cut my teeth as a reporter, you know, being printed and published in the school paper uh, every week. And you were responsible for taking pictures as well and, 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 uh, a lot of times it might not have been just articles. You were also contributing columns and whatnot. Um, so it was, it was, you know, great on, you know, hands-on experience uh, from early on and then getting a chance to work for the campus radio station as well. And the way the program, as I said, was set up with, you're getting a taste of, of all of the facets of journalism, print, broadcast uh, on both sides for a couple of years. But then in your final year, it was almost akin to uh, the university setup of picking your major, quote unquote. So you either had to decide you're going the print route and then all of your classes would be uh, focused in on magazine and newspaper, or you go the broadcast route and all of your classes were focused on radio and television. And I went the broadcast route, so I had a very defined focus studies uh, for at least the one year on just broadcasting. What are some challenges that come with your job at Sportsnet? Uh, I mean, probably a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's, you know, you mentioned off the top as the as the sideline reporter and host on the Raptors broadcast, but my other role, of course, on the radio side is as the play-by-play -play voice of the Toronto Raptors for the fans. So it's 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 kind of wearing both hats, and that's probably the biggest challenge for me is both um, both mediums are are completely different. Yeah, uh, the way you write 
you know, the way you write for radio versus television, the way you broadcast for radio versus television, the tighter time constraints of TV versus radio. Um, you know, when I'm broadcasting, doing play by play on the radio, knowing that you have to present and, and paint the picture for your audience and, and the words you use and the descriptions you use and whatnot, because people can't see it versus on TV, uh, maybe having to scale back even more and, and, and to really tighten up and condense what you're saying, because people don't want you talking over the game. They want you to shut up quickly and just yeah. get to your point and get out, you know, like, the, and that's a reality. Um, that's that's a challenge in itself and just kind of you know wearing both those hats knowing day to day am i am i radio today am i tv today am i both today um being able to kind of you know flip and morph in between those roles um i've been doing it long enough again i don't say this arrogantly I, that that i think i i'm pretty good at kind of meeting those challenges most most days um but it's also the the freedom sometimes of radio uh, and I mean, on the mic and off the mic, uh, you know, there's, there's not as many, uh, chefs in the kitchen, uh, when it comes to radio, it's sort of turn on your mic and go, and you don't hear from the boss very often, unless you really make a mistake on the TV side, you've got a camera person and you might have an editor and you might have a producer and a director, and then you've got an assignment editor. And then there's, there, there are more people kind of weighing in on what you do and, and, and part of the creative process. And that's not, that's not necessarily a negative thing. It, they all help contribute to the overall team effort. Uh, it just means though that there are more people to answer to and, and more people to collaborate with where there might be a little bit more freedom and flexibility on the radio side. How do you overcome those obstacles that are in your way? Uh, being a good team player. I don't want to sound cheesy about it, but you have to be open to other ideas and suggestions and constructive criticism. Uh, but at the same time, then you also have to be uh, strong in, in your own beliefs or convictions uh, or, 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 you know, attitudes and, and understanding of what you think is right and wrong. So again, it's just being a good team player. It's being able to uh, collaborate with others um, and, uh, and, and listen, just being able to be a professional and, and, and be versatile. Cause I would say to, to you or to anybody watching this that might be younger than me or trying to come up in the business or anything, it's only going to benefit you if you prove that you can do a lot of things and are willing to do a lot of things and if you understand a lot of the different roles and i think it helped me in my career that i worked behind the scenes a little bit before i ultimately was on the air that i've been you know i've i i was a producer i booked guests i, I i've been a reporter i've been a host i've done pregame i've done halftime i've done broadcast i've done tv i've done radio i've written uh, I've done features, you know, I've, 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 you know, worked, uh, a lot of different events, big and small. I've, you know, I've done web broadcasts. I've called games off monitors. I've done simulcasts. If you can expose yourself, Michael, to so many different, um, jobs within the industry, it's only going to benefit you. If you've, if you've had an opportunity to produce, it's probably going to make you a better director or vice versa. If you've had a chance to be an editor, it's probably going to help you if you're ever on the air and you're um, trying to voice a highlight pack or you're, you're hosting or anchoring a show and you understand what your editor has done for you or put in place or what they've written for you or how tough their job is and how their job makes it easy for you. Uh, you know, if, if, as I say, and I'm at the risk of repeating myself, if you've, if you've done television, but you've gone to radio, you understand the difficulty of having to ad lib and improv and not have a script and not have a teleprompter. But then when you go to radio, you recognize that, all right, I recognize the challenges of TV where I maybe have to use a prompter or have to use a script to keep me on time because I don't have that freedom to just talk and talk and talk and talk because it's much more concise. 
and we've got to get to break that much quicker. And, and there are more people relying on me from the cameraman to the producer, to the director, to the switcher, to the Chiron, to the graphics, to the whatever. There's so many people in that team, again, whereas there's so much more freedom in radio and you've got to be able to respect uh, both sides of, of the industry and broadcasting and respect that there are so many people that are kind of putting together the ultimate end product and you're just a part of that. Just because it's your face on the camera or your voice behind the radio, you're just a part, a minor piece to it. Because if, if I'm hosting uh, a show or Michael, if you're hosting this show and I'm behind the scenes and I'm doing all the work for you and doing all the heavy lifting, if I screw up, nobody's going to see me. They're going to see you. They're going to say that Michael, you know, did something wrong or Michael made a mistake or whatever. But no, it was the people behind that might have messed up, but it's your face. So they have to have your back, but you also have to have their back because you can't do your job properly without them. So it's never throwing anybody under the bus just because you think you, you might be on air and that somehow, you know, means that you're more important. That's not the case at all. Everybody's pulling in the same direction and working for the same ultimate end goal. And everybody shares in the success and hopefully not the failure of, of the end product, the end product being, you know, hopefully a great broadcast radio or TV or otherwise. And the same thing applies to, to print. You might write a fabulous article, but if an editor, editor excuse me, uh, shreds it to pieces or chops it up or kind of takes away your feel, your voice to what you'd written, it's not going to feel like you wrote it. But in a positive sense, if you wrote something that's really good, but you made some grammatical mistakes, you made some spelling errors, maybe you missed a point, maybe an editor picked up on something that, that asked you for a rewrite to really reemphasize something, they're making you better. So it's a team effort, a collaborative effort as well. How many times have you even you know, seen an article where uh, the headline might be brutal, which makes you then think that the article's bad? Well, the article might be great, but the headline throws you off from the get-go or vice versa. There's probably some articles that maybe, eh, maybe they weren't the strongest written or maybe they could have used a little bit more info or maybe you walked away saying, well, I'm still wondering about X, Y, Z, but you were pulled into that article because of an extremely good headline that, that tantalized you as a, as a reader. So again, it's just speaking to the team effort where everybody's kind of working together and, and it's very, very, um, I think infrequent where it's just one person doing everything and, and, and putting themselves out there solely having every single job, every single role. It's, it's, it's a, you know, for the 19th time I'm saying, it's a collaborative team effort uh, where, where everybody's working together. Well, not only are you, I guess, rushing from on air to, uh, you know, behind the scenes, uh, you actually do the Rogers Cup. Uh, did it come as a surprise uh, as, you know, the Rogers Cup being canceled? Because, you know, with the social distancing, I found that tennis is uh, probably the right sport to, you know, play right now. You know, I, I, I don't know. I guess the, the best answer I can give you is, and I'm coming at this as a, as a man, as, let alone as a, as a father, I think there's so much... Um, well, misinformation for one, but also just lack of information. And I don't say that negatively. I, you know, I, I think even the, the, the top doctors and nurses and, and health experts and whatnot, I think they don't even really fully grasp what we are dealing with right now because it seems like almost a, on a on a day-to-day basis, if not a week-to-week basis, um, we're hearing of a different sign or a different symptom or how things have changed or morph. In some places, it's getting better. Some places, it's getting worse. We still haven't, at least where, where we're talking from, we still haven't had local government officials mandate masks, whereas in other places in the world, and certainly stateside, they have been mandated. It is the, you know, essentially the law to put it on. Um, you know, we're, we're now entering phase two uh, across the entire province of, of Ontario. So 
you know, places are now open, but yet social distancing still being preached and whatnot. So I, I guess my, my, my point to you, Michael, is that without really knowing for sure how, how good or bad this is, how safe or unsafe it is, I guess I tend to think a ball, as small as it may be, being hit back and forth and back and forth and being touched by both players, at least at some points during the service game, and then picked up by, by ball people and, and, and folks on the court and whatnot, I think there's the potential for exposure. So, you know, the Rogers Cup, uh, the players at the, and when they're rallying, uh, you know, they might not stay six feet. Do you think that's also part of the problem? Yeah, I think that could be part of the problem. Uh, and I mean, again, that's a very minor part of the match, but that's a reality that it might happen. So I guess it's something you have to plan for, let alone then players coming to and from matches. And, and, and as I said, the locker room area, how safe and clean could that be? Would you have players not scouring, not, not practicing? Uh, they're only showing up five minutes before, but then are they warming up properly? Does that put you at any potential risk for injury? There's, there are so many potential issues. And I, I guess now, unfortunately, what we've seen, um, just even in the last short bit here this week, Michael, is the uh, uh, Novak Djokovic and the, the sort of mm -hmm. charity tournament that, that he was putting on. Um, and I got to imagine that uh, on the tour, if it was done uh, on, a, on a grander scale at Rogers Cup or, or whatever tournament it may be, with due respect to Djokovic and his people, there would be far more uh, precautions and measures taken. But that said, I've got to imagine that Djokovic and his people uh, attempted to do what they could, tried to be safe, and all of a sudden now he's tested positive, his wife has tested positive, a ton of players within the tournament have tested positive. So that speaks to, and I, I, listen, part of it might have been the social component too. We see the videos on Twitter and whatnot of Djokovic, you know, out partying at a club and whatever else. It seemed like he and so many others were uh, probably a little bit reckless with this. But at the same time, was any of that exposure or that um, uh, you know, the, the spread of the virus on the court, on the tennis court, and not necessarily just in the clubs or in the social gatherings connected to the, to the festivities. Um, so I think that's going to probably uh, send off a lot of, you know, alarm bells for people within the tennis community. So I, I think it's probably the safer thing that um, Rogers Cup decided to, to uh, postpone things until next year. And uh, hopefully I'm back doing it next year. I enjoy doing it. This, I've been doing it for five years now, and, and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, and it's good for me. Speaking to what I said to you earlier, creatively, to always try to find new things, new challenges. So to be able to do something outside of basketball, uh, it's been fun, and I look forward to doing it. And uh, just as, as we've said so many times in this chat, just look forward to when things are safe and, and, and normal again, and we can kind of get back to hopefully uh, some semblance of reality and, and normalcy. You did work at the Olympics in 2012 uh, with play-by-play -play for boxing. How did you get that gig? That was, uh, that was, I don't know if it's fair to say a fluke, but it was certainly a uh, uh, unexpected because I was sitting at home in the middle of the summer uh, thinking I was off and it was my basketball off season and my cell phone went off and I looked at the call display and it was one of the bosses on the TV side. And I thought, why the heck is he calling me? Like, immediately, I, maybe it's just my personality. I'm, I'm thinking it's bad news right away. I'm like, why am I getting a call in the middle of the summer? This, this can't be good. And uh, basically it was, and honestly, the, the conversation lasted maybe two minutes. Uh, what do you know about boxing? And to be perfectly frank, the, the, the ultimate truth was probably not a lot. Um, but I mean, I think I know enough just as a sports fan 
uh, you know, I know I, I enjoy the sport. I watch the sport, but I'm not like a boxing expert or, 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 or overly, overly, overly passionate about box, boxing by any means. But I thought I knew enough. But when the box calls, you're not going to say nothing. You know, of course, yeah. your answer is everything. Yes, of course. So I said, uh, I mean, yeah, I know boxing. Sure. Well, like, why? why? Like, why are you asking? And, uh, well, we need you to, to pitch in and uh, do some workforce for the Olympics. And I said, the Olympics that start in six days, this is less than a week that I got this call. And they said, yes. I'm like, but like, what do you mean? What kind of work? Well, we need you to do play-by-play for men's boxing. I'm like, for what though? They said, for every weight class, for men's boxing, period. And I just, okay, uh, sure. And it <laughs> turned out that Jeff, Jeff Merrick was originally scheduled to do it. And Jeff had um, an illness in the family that needed his... Uh, attention and he unfortunately had to to back out at the last minute so Sportsnet and the 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 Canadian Olympic Broadcast Consortium they were sort of uh, you know scrambling at the last minute fully supported Jeff and rightfully so Uh, and and they just kind of you know called me off the bench and 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 gave me the call and said can you step up can you do this for us so I uh, I crammed in as much prep for I don't even remember how many weight classes, but uh, for the multiple weight classes, I crammed in as much prep work as I could in six days and was extremely lucky to be working alongside Russ Anber, who is to me one of the great analysts in boxing period, but certainly one of the great analysts, if not the best of the best analysts in boxing in this country, in Canada. And uh, he made my job very easy because it was... Uh, by probably the third or fourth day, I had already called about, you know, 50, 60 matches because we're doing every weight class. So you're just doing one after the other, after the other. So that alone was sort of a baptism by fire calling that many matches. But on top of that, it was, you know, it might have been U.S. in this corner and Canada in this corner. Bell goes, boom, here we go. And Russ Russ had like stories upon stories and endless things to say. And then in, in at least in 2012, uh, not surprisingly, there turned out to be quite a bit of controversy with the judging. And honestly, that turned into probably a week, Michael, of, of if not every match, every other match, where Russ was just railing on, on the judging and, and the, the uh, uh, Olympic broadcast, or sorry, the Olympic organizers and um, all of those in charge. I mean, he just was railing on people daily and it made me my job very easy because it was just kind of trying to talk in between Russ going off on, on uh, very, very prophetic and poetic and very relevant rants. And I would just kind of uppercut and then Russ, blah, 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 blah. nice jab sequence. Blah, 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 blah. Got him with the left. Blah, 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 blah. That's the end of round one. And it, it, it became we had a really good routine and, and because Russ is such a professional um, he was very easy to work with. And again, you're doing so many matches in such a condensed period of time that by the first few days and certainly within the first week, it felt like we'd been working together for a couple of years. The chemistry was good. I knew when to jump in. I knew when to shut up. I knew when to let him have his space and, and we weren't stepping on each other. So the chemistry I thought was, was really solid. And I, I, I hope, I think he enjoyed working with me as much as, as I did with him. And, Unfortunately, I just haven't had the opportunity to do boxing again or, or to do the Olympics again uh, simply because of the broadcast rights. Um, you know, it, it hasn't played into uh, to, to, you know, my employers, at least to this point. Uh, but it's certainly something I would, I would welcome and, and love the opportunity to do again sometime. 
with you doing work at the Rogers Cup and at the Olympics, uh, how did you get the job with the Raptors? That's, I mean, that's where it all started for me. So it's, uh, I mean, it's a very, a very long story, but I can, I can try and keep it as, as, as fairly tight as possible, even though, as you can tell already, I tend to, to ramble on a little bit. Um, I came out of college the year after the Raptors uh, entered the league. So in 95-96, when the Raptors had their inaugural season, I was a fan in the stands. But when I came out of college, uh, I was this kid that, that, as I told you earlier, grew up loving baseball and basketball more than, than hockey. Not that I didn't like hockey, uh, but I'm a bit of a weird Canadian in terms of my love for baseball and basketball more so than, than hockey or anything else. Um, and then having played the, the, the game at, a, at a, you know, not any significant level, uh, but enjoying the game and then covering the men's team at Humber. When I hit uh, the fan as an intern and then hired as a part-timer and then as a full-timer, I was bugging the bosses incessantly uh, from the get-go. Can I go down to a game? Can I cover a practice? Practice? Can I, can I help? Can I go hold a microphone? Is there anything I can do? Could I, could I go down and just watch? Can I job shadow? What can I do? And because of it being a new team, uh, and, a, and a sport that was new in a sense to the country in terms of having never had an NBA franchise, there was certainly more willingness to give a young person a chance, let alone more opportunity for a young person to have a chance. That, that opportunity I know would likely not exist today with a team that's now been around for 25 years. And that's simply because, you know, they've been around for a quarter of a century now. They've won a championship. They're, they're, it's, it's, it's not just this sort of, fringe sport or fringe team that oh who knows if it's even going to take off and I can tell you again being older than you there were many many in Toronto this isn't going to last people don't care about basketball this team will go belly up the interest won't be there the ratings won't be there we're a hockey country there were just nobody believed in it or at least few believed I shouldn't say nobody but few believed in it so the opportunity, Michael, for me to, to, to go down and to, to have those job shadow moments or to have those moments where I could help, it was there. Um, the original Raptors reporter at the fan was Elliot Friedman. And uh, one of his primary backups was George Strombolopoulos, who was also looking to get some on-air opportunities because his primary gig was being a board op, an engineer for Spider Jones, who was on the air from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m., uh, three or four nights a week. So George back then had long hair, big ponytail down in the middle of his back, and 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 Elliot, you know, fairly young guy, uh, getting his start in 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 the business in a sense at, at a major radio station. And I was learning from them, and I was going down and covering visitors' locker room or helping run tape back to the station and whatnot. Um, by year three of the Raptors' existence, I'm now into my second full year at the Fan, and uh, I've got the opportunity to still go down and, and, and kind of help out at some games and some practices and be involved in whatever else. And then at the end of that third season for the Raptors, uh, a bunch of stuff happened kind of all at once. The fan acquired the rights to the play-by-play -play broadcast. So the first three years of the Raptors' existence, the, the, the radio broadcasts were on 1010 CFRB. Heading into year four and forever year since, the fan had the rights and has had the rights since. Um, and on top of that, the score started the score, which would, or excuse me, it started as headline sports became the score, obviously then eventually became, uh, sports net 360. But when headline sports started up, uh, 
headline sports took a bunch of people from the industry, whether it be from TSN, from the fan, from otherwise, from across the broadcast sports broadcast world uh, in Toronto and across Canada, from engineers to producers to on-air staff to reporters, you know, directors, uh, editors, whatever. And the fan lost a bunch of people and say eight, 10 people lost their jobs or not lost their jobs, took new jobs at headline sports. The fan replaced those handful with say, say eight left. They replaced those eight with three. Well, I was lucky enough to be one of those three that got hired then full time off my part-time gig. And one of those people that left was Elliot Friedman. So all of a sudden now the fans got the play-by-play rights, but they don't have a primary Raptors reporter. Uh, Barry Davis was the most senior reporter at the station that didn't necessarily have a regular gig because we already had a baseball reporter for the Jays and we already had a hockey reporter for the Leafs. Elliot's vacancy opened up an opportunity for Barry, but being hired full-time and then also for me the opportunity to, you're kind of now Barry's backup. So Barry was hired to do Raptors reporting and to be the host of the pre-half and post-game show. And I was like his backup or his co-host, his number two guy. Chuck Swirsky and Jack Armstrong were hired to become the play-by-play voices and the color analysts for the team. We did that for one year. And at the end of that first season, um, it was kind of after one year, it was sort of Eric Barry hasn't done or watched a lot of basketball, covered basketball a ton, but he's our most senior reporter. So if you can kind of show him the ropes of basketball a little bit, because you know the game, but Eric, you don't know the broadcast world, the reporting role as much, and Barry's got more experience. So Barry will teach you that, and you guys kind of do this tandem thing. At the end of that first year, uh, Barry was looking to explore some other interests and, and, and other opportunities that were presented to him. And uh, he was kind of looking at some other stuff and he decided to leave the fan and the fan then gave me the chance to take over the reporting and hosting the pre-half and post of the broadcast. And I was 25 years old. So very young to be doing that, um, but taken under the wing of Swirsky and Armstrong. And I did that job for seven years. And, and, and did the pre and post for all games, home and road. I'd work out of the studio for all the road games and work obviously down at, at then uh, Air Canada Centre and, you know, Skydome prior to that and a couple games at Maple Leaf, Maple Leaf Gardens. Um, so I did it for seven years doing pre and post and being the primary Raptors reporter. And then when Swirsky and Armstrong left to go to TV and were hired away from radio to TV, that's when the opportunity presented itself for me to actually be hired onto the broadcast and take over uh, along with Jonesy, the, uh, the, the play-by-play and color analyst roles on the fan. And now I've been doing the broadcasts uh, for 15 years. Um, so in the course of those 15 years, Rogers and Bell, you know, the two competitors come together, uh, buy a portion of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. That then split the broadcasts, half the games on the fan, half the games on TSN radio, half the games on Sportsnet, half the games on, on, uh, on, on TSN. And that then opened up the door for me to then get into television that much more because when I wasn't being used on the radio, that's when I would then be used on TV. So I told you it was going to be a very long-winded answer, but that's kind of how the chronology of everything happened and and the opportunities have sort of uh, presented themselves over the course of my my 20-plus years now in the industry. With you being 20-plus years in the industry, uh, you've witnessed uh, some great moments for the Raptors and some bad moments for the Raptors. And, uh, you know, LeBron James was clearly dominant over the Raptors when he played for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, When he left to join the Lakers in the summer of 2018, did you get a sense that it was finally the Raptors' time to win? 
the short answer is yes. Longer answer is it was now everybody's chance. Because the one thing that I think gets lost in a lot of this, Michael, and, and maybe it's, we talk about it because it makes sense. We're in the Toronto area and the Raptors are the home team and whatever. But for all the people that say that the Raptors couldn't get by LeBron, did Boston get by LeBron, you know, for, for so many years? Did, did, did Milwaukee, did Miami? I mean, Miami got by LeBron when they had LeBron. So they didn't technically get by LeBron. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I, feel like, I feel like we often get caught in this conversation that, that the, the Raptors couldn't beat him. Nobody beat LeBron. He was going to the finals every damn year, whether it was yeah. Cleveland, Miami, or back to Cleveland again. It was LeBron James in the finals. Nobody beat him. The Toronto Raptors came the closest when they took him to six games in the conference finals. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's where I, I guess I got a little bit of a thorn on my side that, uh, about those that continue to, to hammer home that the Raptors couldn't beat LeBron. Nobody was beating LeBron at that point. But when, yeah, when he left, sure, the East was open. But even when the East was open, we were still hearing that the Raptors might not be good enough. They might not have enough. You know, Milwaukee's better. The Celtics might be better, whatever it may be. Well, hey, Raptors went and proved themselves. They knocked off the, the 60-win team, the Milwaukee Bucks, and beat them in four straight games and battled back from being down and, and, and winning in double overtime in game three. So I, I think they proved themselves. And then they followed that up by continuing to prove themselves this year that even without Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green, for that matter, and, and with the multiple injuries they had this year, um, that they were still pretty damn good and still are considered a championship contender this year. So, um, you know, kudos to them for seizing that opportunity and taking advantage of that, as so many other teams in the East uh, have tried to do and are still trying to do. Because, you know, we're talking about one of the, the all-time generational players in the game. You know, we can sit here and argue whether he's I – don't, I don't think he's number one, but – whether he's number one, whether he's number two, whether he's three, four, five, whatever it may be, he is one of the all-time greats in the game. He's a generational guy that we've been lucky enough to, to watch and see in person, up close and personal, and hopefully continues to play for a few more years. And guys like that uh, have a long, long lineup behind them of players, let alone teams, that don't have a ring because they had to face LeBron James or Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, or whomever it may be. And those are the, what I say, those generational players. So there's a long lineup behind of, of guys that have kind of fallen in the wake of LeBron James. Do you ever get nightmares about LeBron James and his dominance against <laughs> the Raptors for when he did play with Cleveland? I don't get nightmares because, honestly, it, it, I won't lie to you. Um, is it better when the Raptors are winning? Is it better for me? Yes, because it's more fun mm-hmm. to broadcast a winning team. It's more fun to call relevant games. It's more fun to be in the playoffs, to be in the conference finals, to be in the finals. I had a hell of a time last year. It was amazing. So I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't wish the Raptors would win. If that makes me, uh, you know, if I'm breaking the cardinal rule of, of reporting in, in terms of trying to be impartial and, and show no allegiance, then fine. I break that rule. I don't know that I openly, outwardly cheer for the team and, and wave the pom-poms and everything else. But I do acknowledge that I have more fun when the team is winning. However, I'm not between the lines. I'm not playing the game. Whether the Raptors win by 20 or lose by 20, I didn't make or miss a shot. I just call the games. And I just sit there and I'm lucky enough to, to, to get paid to watch games and to talk about games. So I don't have the nightmares. I, yeah, I mean, listen, I can recount moments and I can definitely tell you how it stings, but I don't go home at night and stew about it and stay up at night thinking, oh my gosh, what if we had done this? What if we had done that? Because I'm not part of the we. I didn't do anything. <laughs> I just watched the game and talk. So um, it's, 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 it's kind of a, a different perspective, I guess, than, than the fan that's sitting at home 
uh, or in the arena that's that's living and dying on every shot because you do have to approach it from a bit more of a you know a, a, an impartial professional perspective and, and not just kind of that that passionate fan perspective. Did you receive a ring for the historical run? I did. I did. Yep. Uh, team broadcasters from that standpoint are considered part of the team or at least part of the traveling party. I'm, I'm you know, fortunate enough to uh, travel on the team charter and with the, with the players and with the coaches all year. Uh, so I did, I did receive a ring. Um, there were various, not that it matters, honestly, you could have given me a $5 ring. It wouldn't have mattered, but there were various, you know, tiers or classes of rings. So the, the ring I got, while still extremely, extremely beautiful, and I am beyond grateful, so I don't want that misconstrued. I'm beyond, beyond, beyond grateful to have a ring and to have been uh, given a ring and to be included. I can't thank the the, the Raptors and, and 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 Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment enough for including me. Uh, but the ring I'm wearing is certainly not the same ring that uh, Kyle Lowry is 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 wearing, and that's perfectly fine. He should be wearing a ring that's worth a hell of a lot more. Because again, to go back to the last question. He did a hell of a lot more lifting and heavy lifting than I did just sitting there talking about the game. So it's, uh, it's, it was incredible. It was incredible to, to, to witness that, to, to, to call that final game, that game six on the radio, to witness the celebration, to be a part of the parade and, and working the parade, and then to see the ring ceremony. And it, it's, it's, it was a bit of a blur at times, and I can't believe it's already been a year. Yeah. That, you know, a year has gone by. It's, it's, it's wild to me. You know, as much as the last four or five months have been a grind and, and just been a challenge with the uh, pandemic, in many senses, as, as grinding as it's been, it's also flown by. Because as I say, again, I can't believe that an entire calendar year has gone by since the title. Did you get soaked in champagne after the Game 6 win? <laughs> uh, I got sprayed. I didn't get soaked. I thought I would <laughs> actually get more soaked. But by, by the time, by the time uh, I got off the radio and finished the radio broadcast and then got down on the floor and into the locker room to then pick up my television portion of my work and my commitments for that night. The initial first wave of the champagne shower had kind of already happened. So when I got into the locker room and, and you know, I interviewed uh, Norm Powell, uh, Norm Powell, Serge Ibaka, I think I might've had Fred for a couple of moments as well. Danny Green, Larry Tannenbaum. Um, I think I might have had a couple of the assistant coaches as well. I probably did five or six interviews in the locker room, but I missed that initial wave. So there were still guys pouring, you know, champagne over various heads and whatnot. And there were spraying going on all over the place, but I didn't get completely drenched. In fact, to the point where uh, my hair didn't get messed up that badly. And the only reason I say that is uh, we were lucky enough on, on the broadcast crew to have one of the members of the organization come to us probably about an hour and a half, maybe two hours after the final buzzer and tell us that, uh, you know, because of us being official team broadcasters, we were going to be afforded the opportunity to have a picture taken with the trophy that night as well. So they had the trophy set up in one of the other locker rooms uh, in the arena. And obviously we were last and we should be last. Players, mm. coaches, staff, you know, trainers, uh, you name it, front office staff, they all understandably show so uh, had their pictures taken with friends, with family, anybody that might have been in attendance. And then we were, we were ushered in kind of last to say, hey, this is your opportunity. So I've got a couple of pictures by myself with the trophy, a couple of pictures with Jonesy, a couple of pictures with our entire group, radio and TV. Um, and in taking those pictures, I didn't have to go to a mirror. I didn't have to adjust myself. My suit wasn't soaked. My hair was in place. In fact, a couple of people even joked like, 
did you even go in the locker room? Because you look yeah, like dry and clean and you don't look like a hair out of place. And I'm like, no, I was in the midst of it. I can show you the pictures. There's videos out there of the interviews I did. And uh, I've got the pictures of my feet drenched in as I was walking through probably three inches of champagne on the on the locker room floor and the, the hundreds of bottles that were just, uh, you know, all all over the place in the locker room. And I know my camera guy took one of the bottles, like an empty bottle, just to keep it as a souvenir. He, mm. he, he threw it into his backpack and brought it back with him. Uh, and he's probably got it in his, you know, basement or something now as a, as a little keepsake, a little souvenir. That's one of the bottles from the, the championship. I didn't think to do it. Um, so I was there, but I, 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 I maybe didn't look like I was, but I was certainly right in the midst of it. How big was your street party when you came home? Um, yeah, that was a surprise. I guess you saw that on, on Instagram or Twitter or something. That was, I had no idea about it. Uh, my wife called me when I was driving home from the airport and I, 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 I took a, a red eye flight the next morning, stayed awake basically the entire night. Cause after the, uh, after the championship was won and after those pictures were taken, uh, we were invited by the team again, as, as the broadcast crew, we were invited to come to their, their post game celebration at a restaurant in, in San Francisco that they had shut down completely just for the team oh, wow. uh, and for Maple Leaf sports entertainment staff. So it was, you know, food and, and drinks and whatever. Um, but there was a flight at 7 a.m. Uh, so I just stayed awake all night and, and got to the flight and was able to, you know, land at, at, I don't know, I guess with the time difference, it was around three or four o'clock and drive home. So I had no idea what I was coming home to. My wife called me. She's like, you know, tell me when you're about 10, 15 minutes out. I might need you to stop at the store. I'm thinking, man, we just won the championship. I don't want to stop at the store. I want to come home and I don't want to run, run errands. You know, like, like let me get home and give you a hug and see my kid and talk about the championship or whatever. I don't want to go to the store to pick up groceries, but okay, sure, whatever. It's like being, being a husband and being a dad doesn't end just because your job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got to do it. It's like, okay, fine. But little did I know she was setting me up to make sure that the rest of the neighborhood was ready. And so I call her and it's like, okay, I'm about 10 minutes away. She's like, okay, you know what? Never mind. Just forget it. Just come straight home and we'll go out later. And it, it turned out as well that she was not the one that organized this. Oh, it was wow. one of my neighbors. And uh, they had already gotten the picture of me with the trophy off Twitter or Instagram in the crazy. 12 hours. And they blew it up like poster size. So they had it on my garage and it was taped to my garage. And the kids in the neighborhood had like taken chalk and written all over my driveway and all over the street and the sidewalks and this and that about Raptors and championship and Mr. Eric, welcome home and, and all the stuff. And there was probably, I guess, between my neighbors, I'm trying to just do the quick math of the seven or eight neighbors that I'm close with and then that were in the, it's probably like yeah, 40 ish, 50 people maybe. We ordered pizza and had some beers and, and one of the other neighbors had gone and got a cake and had Raptors championship and whatever. So it just turned into like a, a nice little street bash for a few hours and certainly a, a fun thing to come home to. Even though I hadn't slept, it was, it was good to just to, to keep the party going. The Raptors fired the eventual coach of the year in Dwayne Casey and hired a rookie head coach in Nick Nurse. Do you think it's crazy the accomplishments that Nick has already achieved? Yeah, I mean, when you think about winning a championship in, in your first year, um, that's, I mean, how, how, can you, how can you set the bar any higher than mm -hmm. that? Uh, but then to follow it up this year, as I say, it, you know, in the face of all the injuries the Raptors had, to still have one hell of a season this year, and hopefully it's something they can keep going when, when play resumes. Uh, you know, they did go in with the second best record in the East and, and the, the third best record overall in the entire NBA. Um, I was I was a little bit surprised uh, when 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 Dwayne Casey was let go, but I, I I suppose, and I've said this a few times, and I always kind of give it the caveat of I want to be clear that 
I liked him as a coach. I still like him as a man uh, and as a coach, you know, let alone what he's trying to do with, with, with the Pistons. I, I, I feel like, and, and this is something I said about DeMar DeRozan as well, right, who I have nothing but great things to say about as a, as, a, as a person, let alone as a player. It was one of those things, and I think we see it all the time, Michael, in sports where you get to that point where you feel like, have we run our course with mm. this core of players, with this coach, with this, this philosophy, with this approach, whatever it may be. And that's not to say that Dwayne did anything wrong. That's not to say that DeMar and Kyle couldn't have been successful together. It was, I think, just a case of, do we need to try something different? Do we at least need to try? Because it could have failed. Maybe Kawhi doesn't turn out to be a great fit in Toronto. Maybe he ends up being hurt. Maybe, you know, you're, you're pining to have DeRozan back. Maybe things don't take off for Nick Nurse. Maybe you're thinking about, we, we, we don't know what we had till it was gone. We should have kept doing Casey. You don't know. And that's just sports in general. So I think it was, well, we have to try. We've tried it one way for a while. Let's try a different way. And I think part of what ultimately made it work, in spite of the fact that there were some uh, conversations uh, with Mike Budenholzer and with other potential coaching uh, candidates, it ultimately landed on Nick Nurse. And part of the reason why it worked, I think, was because of the familiarity of an assistant just simply sliding across the bench into that head coach's role. And even though he came with new philosophies and new ideas, there were still some similarities in what he did. And at least there was, as I say, the familiarity with the players, which then speaks to the trade with DeRozan as well, where there was similarities and chemistry with most of the core of the team. Danny Green was added, Kawhi Leonard was added, but Van Vliet, Siakam, Lowry, Abaka, uh, you know, Powell, Ananobi, the list goes on of, of five, six, seven guys that were core guys that could still be the glue to hold together the chemistry. You know, Marc Gasol was added late in the season, but for 65, 75% of that year, it was really only, and as much as they were two key pieces, it was only two new guys. So it was two new guys, yes, with a new coach, but a coach who was a lead assistant who just simply slid, you know, slid up the bench with a core team that was in place. And it was almost like, hey, Kawhi, Danny, you guys got to get in line. You got to do it our way. You got to realize that there is a Raptor way of playing and you guys have to figure it out more than we have to figure you out. And to their credit, Green and Leonard, they did figure it out and they obviously contributed in such a massive way. Both of them, not just Leonard, uh, Green as well, um, but you know, clearly Kawhi having one, one hell of a one season with Toronto. I want you to take me through the last 10 seconds of game seven versus Philadelphia. Uh, I was, where doing, were you, you know, just all that yeah, general. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was doing the TV broadcast for that game. So, you know, I had the, I had the, the radio call for the final game for the championship, but I had the TV work, the sidelines for game seven. And I was in the um, tunnel closest to the Raptors bench which is the corner where Kawhi was, uh, you know, ultimately releasing the shot from. And I had come out of the tunnel because I needed to be right on the edge of the court to be able to run onto the court and get my post-game interview as soon as possible. So I was standing uh, right at the very end of the Raptor bench in that corner. I was probably 10 feet from Kawhi or maybe 15 feet from Kawhi when he hit the shot. But if you, if you get a chance to see any of the either wider, wider angle shots, you know, video or certainly still image, I've seen it myself in some of the pictures. There's a wider angle and you see me and, and a few others where I'm doing this looking up at the, at the screen instead of looking like this up at the shot because I couldn't see the shot, even though he was, oh, okay. like I say, yeah, 10, yeah, yeah. 15, 
even though he's 10, 15 feet in front of me, I couldn't see because I was blocked out by all the guys yeah, yeah. on the bench. Everybody was standing in front of me. Uh, I couldn't see. So I had to look up at the monitor at the big, you know, jumbotron or whatever to see the shot. And then, you know, as it went down and it sounds, it sounds cliche, um, but it's true. It was one of those, you know, time stood still. You could hear a pin drop moments. It was quiet as anything in that arena for those two seconds, three seconds, whatever it was. And then the roof exploded. And I didn't, oh, yeah. you know, again, speaking to the job and the professionalism, you're not sitting there cheering. Or it's like immediately, boom, shot goes down and it's go time. you got to get yeah. on the floor. You're trying to grab a player. You're trying to do your interview. The mayhem of everything that's happening. And, yeah, you're soaking it in internally, but you're not outwardly expressing it because you've got a job to do. Uh, and then ultimately, Kyle Lowry was brought over to me, and I did the interview with Lowry, and, and, and Kawhi was just to my right or our right uh, doing the interview with uh, uh, TNT. So it's just a, a, a crazy, crazy moment. And to me, the biggest – if it isn't the biggest shot in NBA history, the most dramatic shot in NBA history, it's certainly got to be among the top three. Um, and, and it's funny that we talk about that shot even more so than game six against the Warriors and actually winning the championship mm -hmm. because it was such a dramatic moment. With that shot being so emotional and everyone was dancing and cheering, can you imagine that shot being replicated, having the same emotion without fans? Or would you say the players would treat it as business as usual? Uh, no, I mean, listen, the fans, no doubt, added to it. And it's a great point you make about, uh, you know, what life is going to look like without fans. Mm -hmm. um, but, hey, if that shot were to happen again or a similar moment, it's still going to be euphoric. It's still going to be pandemonium. It's just going to be with... 15, 25 people, if we include, you know, coaches and staff. Uh, yeah. And that can't replicate 25,000 or 20,000. Um, but at the same time, I don't know. I'm not saying anything that, that isn't obvious. It's, it's more the noise. Yeah, it's the passion. It's the emotion. It's feeding off the fans. It's, it's soaking in the fans and, 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 and reveling in their joy as well. But they're not running into the stands and hugging fans. They're yeah. hugging each other. They're hugging their teammates, their coaches. They're, they're jumping up and down with their teammates and, and, and uh, you know, maybe seeing if there might be some, some family members or friends that can leak onto the floor that they can get at. But otherwise, they are sharing that moment uh, with their fellow teammates and with their team, period, more than anybody else. It just happens to be really damn loud around them because there's 20,000 people screaming and cheering as well. So with no fans, if the Raptors win the championship, to me, it, it goes back to uh, you know, when you're playing as a kid, whether it be playing street ball, playing in an empty gym and, and replicating those moments, of the ch you know, the, the clock winding down where you get to hit that, that, that winning shot, that championship shot, whatever it may be, it speaks to, I'm sure there are plenty of guys that played in, in high schools where they were playing to a couple of hundred people in the gym, not a couple of thousand. There are guys that played in college that didn't play at major programs where there were 15, 10, 5,000 people in the stands. There might've only been a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand. So it's, it's just going back to, hey, even Summer League in Vegas. Summer League in Vegas, yeah. sometimes, yeah, it sells out and it's really, you know, loud and crowded and busy. Other games, it's a couple hundred people at most in the stands. So it's just playing the game you love for the competition. Why do you and I go out on weekends as weekend warriors to play hockey or basketball or yeah. baseball or whatever in the competition against our friends? Because we just like to play the game. And when we play, as much as our parents might have told us, you, you know, you play to have fun. You play to, you know, hey, we also play to win. Yeah, Nobody exactly. wants to lose. So whether there's fans in the stands or not, I feel like competitive juices are going to be flowing. Guys are going to be take this, taking this seriously. Uh, and and, and uh, if you ultimately win a game, a series, a title, it's going to still 
uh, carry a lot of weight and carry a lot of uh, joy and euphoria in that moment. How crazy was the championship parade? Because you were right on the bus. Yeah, it was nuts. Um, that's something I don't think I'll ever get a chance to experience again. Because even if even if the Raptors win a title, uh, certainly not this year because of the pandemic, yeah. there'd be no parade. Uh, but I'm saying even five years from now, 10 years from now, if the Raptors win their, hey, hopefully it's their third or fourth title by then. Um, but if they win a championship in, in five years, I don't know that we can ever replicate what we saw last year. I think mm-hmm. that, that the city was taken by storm uh, and didn't expect. You know, we could have sit, sat here and said, oh, you know, there could be a million. I don't think we were expecting two and a half to three million. Um, yeah. So that, that alone, the sheer size, I don't think I can ever say I'll, I'll see something like that. And, and, and for me, selfishly, it was sort of – listen, I'm sure it was the same for the players because as much as we just talked about, they play in front of, you know, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 25,000 people. They've never had that, that rock star moment of being just cheered and, 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 and I don't even know what the proper word is, um, loved, that's not even the word I wanted to use, but, but adored and, and fawned upon by millions yeah. for seven plus hours. It was crazy. To go from the Prince's Gates all the way along Lakeshore and see, I don't know, 50 people deep on both sides of the road, let alone yeah. to make that turn up, up York University. The amount of times that I just looked at Jonesy or looked at anybody else that was on the bus, and we, we went on every single bus except for the bus that had uh, Kyle Kawhi in the trophy. We were right, on yeah. every other bus hopping on and off as they were moving very slowly and doing all these interviews. And the amount of times I just looked out and said, holy blank. I could not believe what I was seeing. I couldn't believe how many people were there. And especially when we came up, up, up university um, and we were looking out at uh, like Front Street and, and, and Adelaide and, and King and Queen and Wellington and whatever else and looking east and west and seeing the people that were now not just 20 or 50 people deep, but like 100 people deep because you're seeing at least two, if not three or four city blocks deep. As I'm coming up university, I can see people all the way over on Bay, let alone damn near Young Street as we're crossing King. Like it just, it, it was crazy the amount of people. And what a thrill to, to, to be able to say that I was, you know, they weren't cheering for me, but, but uh, one of the people that got to be on the bus just to witness it from that bird's eye view, from that perspective, was, it was amazing. Now, I don't want to speak uh, too much on this, but there was an apparent shooting at Nathan Phillips Square on the same day, correct? During when uh, Matt yes. Devlin was, uh, you know, introducing the Raptors and all that. So, you know, that must have been scary for you. Yeah, it was. And, and um, that kind of, there's no denying it, put a black eye on, on the whole day. Yeah. Um, something I posted, you know, it was, it was just over a year ago that it happened. Uh, I believe it was the 17th of June last year that the, the parade went down. Um, and I remember posting that day that, that from what I saw, as I just said to you, Michael, for 95, if not 99% of the day, I saw a crowd that was uh, in control, that was filled with joy and love and just passion for the team. I didn't see pushing and shoving in the crowd. I didn't see fights breaking out. I saw a, a very calm, uh, in terms of their um, outward expression, there it was a calm crowd calm in the sense that there was no no violence that i saw at least and again i'm looking at from the bus i only saw people screaming and yelling and cheering for the players and and for the raptors um i didn't see anything bad 
but uh, the shooting was very serious. It affected a lot of people, not only in terms of the victims, but then also those that got trampled, those that got oh, caught yeah. in, the, in, the, in the chaos, and those that, that um, were simply just fearful for everything that was happening, and understandably so. And the job that Matt did um, to keep the crowd calm, but also informed, I thought was amazing. Uh, I have nothing but respect for him as a friend, let alone as a, as a fellow broadcaster and professional. He was, he was amazing. And, and, and listen, I was there. I was, I was to the right of the stage um, when this was happening because as we got off the bus, um, we were uh, sort of ushered into a, a seating area where a lot of the friends and family were. And okay. the players were sent to the left to go to the stage. So I was standing to the, to the right of the stage and I was, I was looking at Matt and as he was talking, and, and I guess as the shooting had happened, uh, I saw out of the corner of my eye, a lot of the, the heads that were facing, you know, like say face straight on like this, all of a sudden people, boom, were looking sideways. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of looked myself like what's happening. And you literally saw heads just. Boom, 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 that boom, must've boom, felt so every, surreal though. Like, well, yeah, we're like, what the hell is happening? Yeah. And we thought that what, what happened really quickly from, I don't know if it was Twitter or what it was, but, but word very quickly, like within a minute, oh, word yeah. filtered out that it wasn't initially that there was a shooting. It, it was the initial report was people are trying to get into Nathan Phillips Square. And the assumption was it was people from the parade route are now basically trying to get into the square because they want to be a part of the celebration still and they want to be a part of the speeches and everything. So now folks within the square are getting trampled because people are getting over the barricades and trying to get in. Well, that was partly true, but it wasn't just parade folks trying to get in. It was people running for their lives, scared because of the shooting that were trying to get over barricades, trying to get in and people getting trampled. And again, as I said, the way that Matt very quickly got the information, what little information he had and able to keep things under control, keep everybody calm to not cause mass hysteria which would have obviously compounded things and made things even mm-hmm. worse, which then allowed the police to do their jobs and to very quickly uh, apprehend the folks and to maintain enough control to the point where the rally was able to continue on, <clears throat> excuse me, rally and continue on. That also had the prime minister on stage. Yeah. So you got to figure his security detail, probably working with uh, Metro police still felt comfortable enough that things were safe enough, controlled enough, and and the situation had been handled well enough that they didn't even rush the players, let alone the prime minister, out of there. So again, <coughs> I apologize, excuse me, that just speaks to how uh, calm and controlled everything was from, from Matt to security to police to everyone on down. And, and, and um, that's how I kind of choose to look back on that day with due respect to the victims it to me was still an otherwise uh, joyous day um, that, that, that was a lot more positive than negative. And again, I can't stress enough. I'm not trying to be insensitive to those who, um, who ultimately were affected in, in such a terrible way. You did. Oh, sorry. Oh, Go ahead. Uh, you did do a midweek with uh, James Sobolski. And during that talk, uh, you said you had to get tested for the coronavirus. So why did that happen? Uh, well, the Raptors' last game, uh, you know, at least to, even to this day, the last game was in Utah against the Jazz. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the Raptors uh, played on the Monday night. I honestly don't remember the date now, the 8th or 9th, uh, I believe, of March, whatever that Monday was. Uh, 
we took a red eye flight home. So landed very early on Tuesday morning. And uh, then it was Wednesday night. The Raptors just by fluke, their next game wasn't supposed to be until the Saturday. So they played Monday night and had an extremely, extremely rare uh, four full days off, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, before their next game was scheduled to come on Saturday, I believe at home against the Pistons. And uh, for the Jazz though, the Jazz were playing that Wednesday night. And of course it was then that we found out about Rudy Gobert and tested yeah. positive. And then of course that game between the Jazz and the Oklahoma City uh, Thunder was, was postponed, called off. Players sent home, refs sent home, and then the league all of a sudden just hit the pause button on everything and everyone. And then suddenly the sports world reacted, and boom, here we are. So on the Wednesday night, as we're getting word about Rudy Gobert's positive test, uh, of course, many within the Raptors are saying our last game was against Rudy Gobert. You know, oh, what about, true. Yeah, so what about Serge Ibaka, who was playing against Gobert for a good chunk of the night? What about mm-hmm. OG Ananobi, who had a bit of a dust-up with Rudy Gobert? Uh, late in the ball game. What about all the players who were on the floor? And then, of course, we all ultimately find out Donovan Mitchell has tested positive as well. So there was concern, and, and rightfully so, that the Raptors might have come in contact and, and might have contracted the virus, certain players or many players, let alone coaches, staff, broadcasters, or otherwise, because we went immediately from the game right onto a, you know, a plane, everybody sitting on the same plane, sitting in the same recycled air for four or five hours. Um, and then on top of that, we had now been home for 36 hours-ish by the time we landed uh, early Tuesday morning and now this game Wednesday night. So, you know, many people, including me, had already been out to the store, you know, running errands to the bank because we'd been on the road for 12 days prior to that game. We had, this is the first time in almost two weeks being home. So the decision was made. Uh, the term that it was given to me, at least initially, was we were considered potential super spreaders. Uh, of the virus because of the fact there were so many of us and then so many of us out in public uh, that we needed to be tested. So we found out on the Wednesday night, technically, I guess it was Thursday morning. It was probably about one in the morning on Wednesday night uh, that you need to be at the hospital at 8 a.m. So I you know, went to bed, got three or four hours of sleep, got up, made the drive to the hospital to uh, North York General and, you know, got those big Cotton swabs got the got the test, got them shoved up my nose, and and awaited the results of my test. And uh, you know, thankfully, I tested negative. Um, I still, though, made the decision on the advice of public health as well, kind of consulting with them. Uh, I made the decision to still isolate in my yeah. home, in my room, my home, simply because, at least initially, Michael, and I still think it's the case right now. But in the first days. I mean, we, were, we weren't even talking a week into this at this point. So in the initial days, let alone in the initial weeks, there was a lot of talk about the five to 14 day incubation period and a negative test might be a positive test tomorrow or in a couple of days and, or you could be asymptomatic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of made the decision, again, consulting with public health. And, and as it turned out, it was, it was a little extreme and it was overly cautious, but I'm, I'm of the opinion I would have... I would have rather been, and I'm glad I was, overly cautious rather than, uh, I don't think underly cautious is a word, but not cautious enough. Uh, I'd rather be a little bit too uh, paranoid than um, too flippant. So I thought, even though I was negative, if there's a chance that I might be positive or that I might ultimately be positive or that I could be asymptomatic or something yeah. like that, if I give this to my wife or kid, I won't, I won't live that guilt down. 
I mean, no, I'd, 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 I'd feel terrible for them, but certainly I'd feel terrible for myself for just being stupid enough to, to, you know, give it to them. So, uh, and listen, I'm not trying to sound like I'm some sort of hero by any means, but as, as cheesy as this might sound, if people can live in a tiny little prison cell for weeks, months, years, decades, I figured I can live in a 10 by 10 bedroom with a TV and a bathroom attached for 14 days. Yeah. It's not ideal. It's not ideal, but I got a bed, I got a TV, I got a toilet, I got a sink. I think I can be okay. So my wife would come up, she'd leave food at the door, she'd knock on the door, she'd walk away, I'd open the door, I'd grab my food, I'd close the door. So I didn't interact with them, I didn't move from that room, I didn't go into any other room in the house, I didn't leave the upstairs, I didn't, nothing. For 14 days, and we would just do Zoom calls or WhatsApp chats and whatever from our house, just from bedroom down to the living room. Right. Uh, I, would, I would text or just shout through the walls if I wanted a coffee or if I needed a snack or something. And uh, I would watch TV shows on my computer so that I could sync, you know, allow them to use the, the box downstairs and, and so like kind of, okay, hit three, two, one, hit play, and just watch a movie together, quote unquote, together at the same time on two separate screens from two separate floors, you know? So uh, I just felt that that was the smarter, safer thing to do. And, and at the end of my 14 days, I finally came out and was able to give them a hug and a kiss and, and see the family again. And knock on wood, we've stayed safe and healthy since, and we've limited our interaction with the public. I, I still haven't been in a store. Uh, we've done online delivery or curbside pickup for everything to this point. So I physically haven't had to step into a store yet. We've been lucky enough to be able to have those um, options. And uh, it's kind of become the new norm for us, uh, doing a lot of online shopping, online ordering, and just uh, uh, keeping our distance. And some people in our neighborhood have started to relax on the rules a little bit. We've continued to maintain our six feet. And even if we've had family over, they have not been in our home. They've only been in our yard. And even okay. in our yard, they're, they're six feet away. So we're, we're doing our, our part in the Smith household to, uh, to continue to be as safe as possible for not only ourselves, but for the community. But um, as we started talking about off the top with this, I think uh, as we're, we're into phase two now, it's, it's a lot of people maybe just kind of getting fed up and frustrated. And, and um, I can appreciate that. I can respect that. Just hopefully it doesn't you know, equate to a massive spike in things in another week or month or whatever. I'm sure you must have been juiced or buzzed when you heard the confirmation of how the NBA season will be played out. How are you liking the new NBA playoff format? Uh, I think, it sounds great, and then my fingers are certainly crossed that it that it comes off without a hitch. Um, I, I, you know, I think it I, I, it sounds like they've tried to um, prepare for as many potential risks and problems as could potentially exist. You know, as it relates to the virus. Uh, you know, hopefully the players stay within the four walls and and don't venture off because I think they're only putting themselves at risk, let alone the rest yeah. of their team and the rest of the league. If if you know somebody kind of goes rogue and just says, "Forget it," I need to. I need to get out. I need to go somewhere else. You know, you're putting yourself at risk, let alone everybody else, as I said. But in terms of on the court, the basketball itself, um, I think the NBA and all leagues were forced to get a little bit creative, if not gimmicky, oh, yeah, for sure. with their formats because of the unique time that we're in. However, to me, the NBA is the closest thing to normal that mm -hmm. yeah, we've yeah, seen I agree with thus that. far. You know, they did kind of open the door for the, you know, that, that eighth versus ninth seed mini tournament play in game mm -hmm. scenario type thing, nine teams in the East, 
uh, 13 teams in the West. But for the most part, it's going to be one through eight in the East, one through eight in the West, you know, best of seven in all rounds, as always. So to me, that's the closest to normal. I still am confused by exactly what hockey is doing. I, I don't completely understand their format even to this day, and I've had a month to, or almost a month to soak it in. And baseball, I actually like the fact that they've expanded the, the playoffs. I've been calling for it for years. But at the same time, 16 teams is not what it once was, let alone yeah, a 60-game season. Is, yeah. you know, we're not even talking half. So, so, so to me, again, I say the NBA is, is the most uh, closely related to, quote-unquote, normal of, of, of all the sports out there. As we close off this uh, podcast, uh, do you have any advice for aspiring journalists? Uh, well, I think I touched on some of the advice earlier. Uh, and, and so I'll just repeat that if you have the opportunity to do anything, do it. Uh, expose yourself to a lot of things, even if it means that it might not be something that you're as keen on or you think in your mind you wanted to do X, do Y. Do Z because it might make X better in the long run. It might make you better and a more well-rounded broadcaster, whatever that may be. Again, on mic, behind the mic, on camera, behind the camera, whatever it is, have a respect and an appreciation and an understanding and a knowledge of all of the various facets and roles within the industry, within the job itself. It'll make you better, I think, in the long run. And then the only other advice I give, Michael, um, and again, I always say this when I give this advice, this is not the gospel by any means. This may not apply to you. It may not apply to others. I'm just telling you what worked for me. Yeah. I've never written a question down because I know in my mind where I want to go with an interview. And I think part of the preparation is memorizing or preparing the questions, the sort of formula or, or the shell of your interview in your head. Right. And knowing, knowing what a good follow-up is, knowing how to follow up, knowing, you know, how to break maybe an interview down into various themes and sections as you've even done in, in, in this where we've talked about so many different topics, but we've kind of done it in various chunks. To me, having that in your head is far better than having it on paper because if you're constantly looking down at your paper, first of all, you're not making eye contact with the person you're interviewing, which yeah. to me is a, is, is a no, um, a no-no. But the other thing is you might not be then truly listening and you might miss a great, great thing to follow up on or to pursue. And you might go into an interview thinking, I've got these 10 great questions and I'm going to talk about these things. And on the second or third question, your, your interview subject, your guest takes you in a completely different direction mm -hmm. that, is, that is far more interesting, far more inflammatory potentially. You never know when you might get that juicy interview, whatever. You've got to be prepared to juke and jive and ad lib and improv and think on your feet and be able to go with it. And if you're not listening for one or you're too busy looking down at your paper and focused on the next question, you're going to miss those chances. You're going to miss those opportunities and you're going to miss that connection with somebody when you're actually truly invested and in, and in, and in, and in, in listening to them. So eye contact and listening and forget the questions. Part of your job going in is knowing what your questions are, what you should be, uh, and then just feeling the interview from there and feeding your questions off the answers you get and then go from there. So again, that's what's worked for me. I think it's important, but I won't deny that, that for some people, they might have to have the questions. Maybe they can't mem memorize it. Maybe there's certain reasons why they need to have it with them, but I'm just telling you what, what's worked for me and what I think uh, uh, you know, is something I've learned and, and felt um, 
to be important in my career. All right, well, I'd like to thank Raptors radio play-by-play and courtside reporter. Eric, thank you again for coming on. No problem, Michael. Thanks for having me.